In healthcare, there are many transformative leaders. The most remarkable leaders don't just dare greatly to drive improvements, they also care greatly. They bring compassion and humanity to the work of leading transformation. This is their podcast. In today's episode, I talk with Dr. Thomas Howell, Assistant Medical Director of Patient Experience and Chair of the Community Division of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the Mayo Clinic. In addition to his leadership roles, Dr. Howell is a practicing OBGYN with an active patient roster. In our conversations with him both before and during the pandemic, we've come to know him as a physician who is dedicated to the Mayo Clinic mission of putting the patient first, but also one who is thoughtful about cultivating approaches that are both workable and fulfilling for the entire care team. In this episode, Dr. Howell and I talk about how he and his fellow clinicians shifted rapidly to virtual care when COVID-19 struck. We look at the importance of a whole team-based approach during any transition, as well as the way that Dr. Howell and others are re-examining care processes in the wake of the COVID-19 disruption. Finally, we look at the role of culture and mission in driving meaningful, sustainable innovation. Dr. Howell is a leader who cares greatly. Welcome, Dr. Howell, and thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. So you're a practicing OBGYN, and while many services shut down during COVID-19, obstetric care can't be safely delayed, which means you had a rapid transition to telehealth. What was that like, and what have you learned from it? Well, it was all kinds of fun. Um, we did learn a few things, I think. One is, um, you know, obstetrics in particular, but the whole organization largely shut down and transitioned to virtual care on a dime. That decision was made pretty quickly and um, implemented very fast. I think that in retrospect, we would have maybe taken another day or two to do that because while leaders and providers and nurses are used to kind of doing things in the moment that need to be done, I think that um, reception and front desk staff really was was very difficult for them. So one of my messages to the organization was, as, hard, as a physician, as hard as this is on you, the poor front desk staff are really getting just hammered. So you have to have some empathy for them, and we need to do things in the pace that we need to get them done, but we also need to understand this is really difficult for those folks. So I think that was one learning. From an OB standpoint, um, you know, we had patients that were used to having a sequence of visits. Um, we really took a hard look at how many of those visits are necessary. Rochester had been doing a program where they did some of what were conventional obstetric prenatal visits virtually already, uh, mostly by phone, a lot of times with nurses. And we leveraged some of that experience. So. Um, Lots of times, if you're not high risk, you're coming in and, you know, I'm seeing you for a few minutes. We have a conversation, set up some educational things. Most of that, if I provide you with a blood pressure cuff and something to listen to the baby with and you have a scale at home, most of that objective information we can get that way. So we switched a lot of those visits to virtual. The other thing that we did that was, I think, helpful is to um, try and coalesce some of the visits. So instead of an exam and an ultrasound, two different visits, we set them up so that we're doing that all at, instead of six and 12 weeks, we'll do it all at eight to 10 weeks. 
um, as much as we can do at any one time to, to eliminate back and forth in and out of buildings, um, I think was the thought and it went pretty well. The interesting thing about that is in a crisis like this, it makes you stop and think, what do we do that's necessary and what do we do that's not necessary? Mm. And um, so we've really learned a lot about that and rethought some of our models of care. So in a way that's been a blessing. That's really powerful. I want to circle back to the empathy for the, the um, front desk folks and some of the other schedulers and things, uh, because I remember you telling a story fairly early in the pandemic <clears throat> about some of your patients wanting to hear from you that their best care was virtual at the moment, as opposed to accepting that from somebody who was trying to schedule. Um, and, it, and I think it's really easy when you're in a stressful situation like that to, to not as a leader step forward and say to the people who objectively have a little less power in a situation, you know, just handle it, just deal with it. But I think that approach of coming back with empathy for them and, and making that awareness across the team um, is really powerful. But I also think that I'm, I'm interested in your take on that, that patient fear and why they wanted to hear from you and, and what, you, what you were able to do around that. Yeah, I, I think there's two pieces of that. One is, you know, 90% of, of patients and the staff just want to be reassured that you're there if, you, if they need you. Mm-hmm. And so being able to message it that, and if you want to talk to Dr. Howell, he's, you know, give us a number. He's happy to call you or contact you. Through our patient portal, we did a lot of um, communication that, that way. So our triage nurses will, will send a message and say, it looks like, you know, things are fine at 28 weeks. Um, would it be okay if you did a virtual visit next time? But then they'll loop me into it. So I simply then respond back and say, yeah, that'd be great. So they know I know. Mm-hmm. And that eliminated, I think, a lot of anxiety just doing that. And then being willing to reach out um, to patients when they wanted that direct communication. But the staff are much more comfortable if they know that you have their back. Yeah. And I think that message, yeah, another learning, you know, just not, here's a process, here's an algorithm, follow this. But yes, follow this. At the same time, use your best judgment. And as um, our vice president for the health system, Dr. Gostow said, our staff need to know that if they're doing what they believe is coincident with our primary value, the needs of the patient come first, we will always stand behind you and back you. So do the right thing in the moment for that person and it'll be fine. Um, and if we need to fix some stuff later, we'll fix some stuff later. That's really powerful and, and send such an important message from the, for the culture. I also heard you talk about um, some real eye-opening um, challenges with some patients not having broadband or otherwise having technology challenges. Can you talk, when we say telehealth people, I think automatically associate to a video visit. Can you talk about what that was really like? Yeah, so one of the things that we did is our, our experience relationship management XRM group stood up a mass email to try and get people hooked up on the portal because the video, we needed to do that to be able to do video visits. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the, the same time, these mass emails are going out and, you know, we get about 20% of people say, yeah, I'm interested. I'll go through the steps to do that and we'd reach out and make that happen. But in um, our non-urban areas, which most of our community practices in rural areas, 
um, we found out there were 20 plus percent of people that didn't have the access. So it doesn't matter how much they want to sign up for the portal, the, the hardware doesn't exist, right? They just can't do it. Right. So this is something that everybody can do everything like you can in a big city. It's just not true. Um, the other thing is we noticed that we were able to be pretty successful and have a good patient experience and provider experience because I think those things are almost always linked. Um, if the flow was pretty smooth or even if it wasn't initially and we fixed it and then subsequently it was. Where we fell down was as we got more used to doing this and we started pulling back some of our support. So the person that would mm -hmm. get on with the patient virtually, check them in, make sure everything works, does your headset work? I mean, we had that problem today with a new headset that I have that didn't, didn't work <laughs> exactly that right. So imagine if you're a patient and you're so frustrated and you're thinking my clock's ticking and I'm going to miss my appointment and all of those anxieties that are already happening. Um, so as we peeled some of that support back, our satisfaction started to drop a little bit. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's really important that people are comfortable and have the support as we're learning and that we provide that across the board, whatever it is. And so if they don't have broadband, we're going to have to find another method. Um, I think the secret to the telehealth going forward is not going to be that, that there's some arbitrary, these people need to do telehealth. It's going to allow us to reach folks that we couldn't reach. Mm -hmm. It's going to allow us to provide convenience for people in a way that's going to be much easier and better for them. So if you can imagine um, working mom is pregnant, is going to come in for a visit. Typically, she has to leave work, gather her stuff, drive to the office. As much as I hate to say this, wait in the waiting room because I just despise waiting rooms and that concept. Um, but do that. You know, it's a half a day, half of a work day for her, especially if she's coming from, you know, somewhere that's 30 minutes away. Now, if she collects her data ahead of time, I can do that in 15 minutes with her, either with video or with phone. And she finds a place where that can happen at work and she's back at work. So it's really a value add for people. I get what I need and they get what they need. And it's the secret's going to be right person, right venue, right time, not this everybody's going to do X or Y. Yeah, so I, I like that. That's, that uh, transitions nicely to my next question, which, which is really about what, what care will look like as we go forward. And, and you've, you've alluded to a couple of things. One is taking a look at what care do you provide that's really necessary, right? Like the, could you combine certain or, or change the schedule or have certain things um, be scheduled to be virtual? But second, that right person, right care, right time. How do you manage that? as a system? How do you collect those preferences? How do you honor those preferences without making yourself as a provider and all of the um, infrastructure around you insane trying to juggle, you know, 16 different versions? Because that's often why we've done one size fits all in the past, right? Is it creates a very nice, manageable, predictable process. So what are your thoughts about what that's going to look like? Well, I mean, I, I think that any change like this it all has to be values based, right? So our primary value is the needs of the patient come first. It's not the needs of the organization comes first or the flow sheet of the organization or the <laughs> policy of the organization. So we, you always have to remind yourself of, of, you know, what are we doing and who are we here to serve? So I think that we are embracing the idea that there has to be multiple channels. 
And it's even a technological solution isn't the only technological solution. So it's very much thinking about, um, you know, oftentimes we'll say, no, we can't do that because it's going to be too many different channels for people. And we need to say, yes, we can do that if we can operationalize these things and we have the right channel for the right person. At the end of the day, one of the things that I think we need to be able to do, and if you can't do this, um, well, all of what we set up doesn't matter, is the technology's only as good as your ability to respond to whatever the patient's need is at the time. Mm -hmm. So if we send an email out or a text message out or a portal message out and ask for a response and they respond back, and it's something that's meaningful and needs to be dealt with in that moment, we don't have anybody to deal with it in that moment. That was a worthless exercise and a very large dissatisfier. Right. You know, don't ask for people's opinions if you're not going to do anything with them. Kind of like, <laughs> right. How you do things. Um, so I think that that's one of the things that we're working to stand up is how do we honor preferences, but more importantly, use the preferences and make them visible to our staff where there's a need for a response, make that response available. And I think that's one of the hardest things to be able to do. The technology is fabulous and easy. And, you know, there's, I don't know how many, um, I asked once about the concern with, um, this is a little bit of a, a squirrel, with the concern with the antitrust with the two big EHR vendors, that they would get so big and mm -hmm. there, you know, there'd be a concern about breaking them up. And, and a couple of attorneys that work in that part of the industry said there are literally 400 bolt-on devices for Epic because there are so many gaps in that that place and so much new innovation coming in. But So there are lots of opportunities, but it only matters if we can respond to them and honor those preferences. Yeah. So that means the technology has to be married to a process on the back end to monitor, to escalate, to intervene as appropriate, which completely makes sense. Um, and, our, and our processes need to catch up, right? So a funny little story had a, a patient that had called, was one of my patients, and said, my daughter was diagnosed with celiac disease. I'd like to get a test, the blood test to see if, because I have some symptoms and maybe um, it'd be good to know that. So she calls to ask that question. And because we have policies, which are very good, well-meaning policies on when patients need to be seen before we can just order labs on them, um, the front desk said, well, you haven't been seen for X amount of time. You need to have a visit. Well, we're purposely trying to have people not have visits, especially if they're not needed. So our policies haven't always caught up yeah. with where we want to get or where we're even at technologically. And if you think about it, the poor front desk staff, right, they're in a bind now. Right, 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 because they've got a policy that they're re responsible for enforcing that has good science behind it, and yet enforcing it at the moment puts somebody in a difficult position and at risk of infection. Yeah. Um, so if you look beyond telehealth, what other kinds of innovation has the Mayo Clinic embraced throughout the pandemic? And, and where did those ideas come from and what kinds of things did you learn from implementing them? Um, I'm trying to think of a couple of really good examples. I think that a place like our destination sites in um, Rochester, Jacksonville, and Arizona are really meant to and excel in the very top of the pyramid care. So highly complicated patients who need that very team-based approach. <clears throat> Excuse me. 
And so the the problem in a lot of our venues is we, we in some ways have more demand than we have capacity sometimes. Um, and it goes back to that right patient, right place. There are a group of patients that we don't want to just open the floodgates and say, everybody come here, because that's not really what our mission is, nor is it the best use of everybody's time and expertise. Um, but we don't want to have it be difficult to get in when you need to be seen either. And so we're working really hard to leverage these new ideas around telehealth and technology in the what you think of as almost used to be the pre-visit space. Mm-hmm. So we, you know, you kind of triage patients, collect information, get in a register, send questionnaires out, do all of this stuff. And then they come physically to your building and do the stuff that's physically done in your building. And then we move on with their next set of things that they're going to do internally or send them back to um, their primary provider or their home base. And that is a, a somewhat of a chunky process. And it, I don't think is satisfactory to uh, anybody to the extent that we'd like it to be. So we're finding ways to use some of this technology to smooth that out and get the information to folks. So maybe I don't need you to come to visits. I can do a lot of it um, up front. So then using telehealth to do your first kind of interview, get to know you, understand what your problem is, make a plan visit. You don't need to fly to Arizona to do that, right? Mm -hmm. We can do that virtually. But we have to be able to do the front-end work to make that meaningful and then collect all that information and make it flow into whatever the next step is and then get you connected back so that that, um, that seamless care really is seamless. But more importantly, it makes sense. So one of the great quotes that I like to say a lot is, is at a meeting once and, and talking about these things, and in experience of providers as well as patients. And somebody said, well, the problem is nobody owns flow. Yeah. And in an organization, you know, who owns flow? So you almost need a chief flow officer um, <laughs> to manage this stuff. And that's really where most of the hiccups come and where most of our mistakes happen in those mm-hmm. transitions where we don't manage them well. That makes a lot of sense. And it, it's also, you know, thinking about it from the patient perspective, um, a relative of mine is getting care at a different facility. Um, and recently did all of that pre-work in a questionnaire, then showed up and the provider was asking all those same questions again. And he said, Didn't, did you read the questionnaire? Why are we doing this again? And sometimes there's a good reason, right? To see if the answers are consistent, to check mental competency, those kinds of things. Um, but sometimes it's just that we often create a multi-channel process that's not a cross-channel process, right? It's got a little bit that happens online, a little bit that happens in person, but those things aren't really well coordinated, which is which is the flow you're talking about. So I think well, what you're there, describing there are, is universal. <laughs> yeah, I think that's true. There are, you know, there are never safety events, never occur safety events like leaving a sponge in somebody in surgery. Um, to me, there should be some never experience events, one of which is to walk into a patient room and say, what did cardiology tell you? <laughs> It's like, don't you people talk? Yeah. Now, what's your understanding of what the cardiologist had to say is an entirely different question of dynamic and very useful. Yes. But I think we, you know, and I even find myself doing, you know, what did your primary doctor tell you? I'm like, no, bad, 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 don't do that. <laughs> well, don't call yourself bad, but it's it's an opportunity for, for improvement. And I like calling it out and recognizing it. So as as you look ahead, 
what's your vision for the future of healthcare? And I know you're very focused on experience, um, both for patients and for providers. So I'd love your, your twist on that particularly. Um, I think that, so I'll use a, a couple of analogies. Um, one is, um, and I have some kids that are old enough to work now and, and we'll credit one of them for this analogy, but um, when, when doctors in particular have had struggles with the EHR, it's the EHR is the problem. And the reality of the EHR, and, you know, that piece of technology or any piece of technology is what we did with electronic health records largely is take our old paper process and our workflows and layer this um, device on top of it mm-hmm. without changing our workflows. So it's like we used to have a hammer and nail and we would bang the nail into the board with a hammer. And we got pretty good at doing that and it worked okay. Then we got a pneumatic nail gun, which will do a lot more, you know, 100 nails really fast, but we still have our old process and, we're, and we basically took the nail, put it on the board, turned the nail gun on its side and banged the nail with the nail gun. <laughs> Feels really clunky. It's a much bigger, more powerful device, but we didn't change our workflows for that. So I think that there has been an acceleration of the available technology as well as implementation and acceptance of it without changing our workflows and really rethinking those almost from scratch. So that would be, I think, one thing that will come out of it that's going to be important and to be successful, you'll have to do that. I think the other thing is that most of these issues around experience in particular in healthcare are not things to be fixed. So this COVID pandemic presented us with some really significant problems that we needed to solve somewhat in the moment, but really it's not about solving a problem. It's about cultivating a way of doing things in a culture. So experience and empathy are really more about gardening than they are mechanics. And we need to be mindful that we're cultivating things and managing a whole bunch of different competing priorities. So we want to do video visits because we think those are better. Um, CMS has responded to video visits different than phone visits. So there's some economic um, imperatives and incentives around that. But we got 20% of our population that doesn't have broadband. So we're going to have to be flexible around those things. I think those are really two kind of visions of how we're going to have to approach this, that it's about cultivation and not just thinking about solving things and really rethinking our processes and our workflows in a way that's going to help manage the flow and leverage the technology in a way that uses it to its best ability, not just makes it clunky and another thing for people to be you know, frustrated with. I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think the two are really closely connected, right? Because if you look at part of why some of those workflows didn't change was resistance. Part of it was lack of foresight to say, we're bringing in a new technology that could change everything. And if you've got that cultivation, that evolution kind of mindset, then it becomes easier to look at those processes and step back and adjust them. Would you agree? Yeah, I think that that's really important. I I think the other piece is, you know, the old start with why. Mm-hmm. So we're not, I always say, when you talk to people in the hospital around experience, there's no nurse on the floor that gets excited about improving HCAP scores so that you can get another $150,000 from CMS on your HCAPs. You know, that's not really motivating anybody. 
but if it's about improving their experience and providing care and helping them communicate better, then I think you have some leverage. So it's the, we're doing this because it's our mission and it's why we're in healthcare. We're not doing it because CMS is going to give us some more money. You know, it's, it's always that vision based on your um, ideas and ideals as well as what your core values are. And I think that that will carry the day in this. And, and we have a lot of opportunity um, with technology that's going to help those things. Thank you for sharing that. And I think that's, uh, again, really, really important. When the why is first, then we can find the tools and use the pneumatic nail gun as intended, as opposed to just following the old process. So um, I really appreciate you sharing your perspective. I really appreciate all that you bring to your patients uh, and to our group. Uh, we always enjoy engaging with you. Um, anything else you want to add or any other comments? No, um, I really appreciate the opportunity and it's always fun talking to you guys. Keep up. You're doing important work, so keep it up. Thank you so much. So good to talk to you today. If you enjoyed this episode of the Caring Greatly podcast, please subscribe and rate us on Apple, Google, Spotify, or Stitcher. For links to resources related to Dr. Howell's discussion, visit vocera.com slash podcast and click on his episode. This is Liz Bohm, Executive Strategist for Human-Centered Research at the Experience Innovation Network, part of Vocera. Thank you for caring greatly.